Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello again. On Saturday, 8th of October, 2016, journalist David Fox was enjoying a beer at the On On Billiard Bar in Sanur on the Indonesian island of Bali. After just one sip, he was tapped on the shoulder by a man who identified himself as a police officer, asking, do you have something on you? He did, and so began eight months of hell in a Balinese jail. Fox is here with me today to tell us about his Anis Horribilis inside Bali's notorious Karobican prison. Sir David Fox, welcome back to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks, Pete. It's uh, nice to be here again, although I wonder if your audience won't get bored with hearing my dulcet tones, but anyway. David, I doubt that, and I promised everyone that I'd have you back to tell us about what happened that year. But first, take us through the events of that day. Um, well, I mean, first an admission, you know, I have been a, uh, a bit of a weed smoker for most of my life, actually. Um, and, you know, knowing the consequences, I, uh, uh, you know, I can't say, you know, well, put it this way. I, I was, uh, I, I was spending a normal day and, uh, the person who owned the bar, uh, a character called, uh, Joe, uh, he had been calling me up throughout the day saying, Oh, I've run out of weed. Is there any chance you could possibly uh, sell me some? And as I kept replying to him, I don't sell weed. I'm not a, a, a dealer or anything like that. Um, and eventually I said, look, I'll bring you a joint this evening to the bar. And as you said, I was sit down at the bar. I had had a sip of beer and I had that tap on my shoulder. So this Joe chap, uh, his proper name, Giuseppe Serafino, was a friend of yours? Yeah, well, you know, insofar as he, you know, it was his bar. It was our sort of local. Uh, me and a whole lot of friends, we used to drink there regularly uh, after golf games, that sort of thing. So, you know, I knew him really well. I wouldn't say he was a friend. It wasn't like he was round at my house or anything like that. Uh, many people might ask, why did you take su such a risk? I mean, Indonesia is well known to carry life sentences for drug offences. Well, I, yes, I know that, but I wouldn't say I was taking particular risks. I was very, very careful. I only ever smoked, you know, a joint on my balcony, you know, sort of last thing at night before I went to bed. Uh, I only ever bought it from a very, very trusted um, a foreign source who actually used to sell it at Joe's Bar, um, where a whole bunch of people would buy it. He'd come around once a month and we'd just buy some weed from him. So it was essentially a sting operation. Yeah, Joe had been caught buying crystal meth, which I knew nothing about, uh, you know, uh, it wouldn't be a, a, something I'd ever try or anything like that. It was, and uh, they put the squeeze on him and told him, look, if you can give us a couple of other people, then we'll let you off. And, uh, and so he handed me up for some reason, he decided I was going to be the sacrificial lamb. And, uh, we, you know, when the cops arrested me, they said the same thing, tell us the name of the person you got it from and, um, and uh, we'll let you off. But, you know, you don't only have to have seen a couple of movies to know that's never going to happen. So I decided the buck stopped with me and uh, I didn't give any more names. Absolutely. Now, you didn't go into Karabakan prison immediately. You had to endure the howl that was remand prison, an experience far worse than the big house, as Karabakan is known. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for three months, I was in a place called Polrestra, which is the sort of uh, police headquarters in, um, in Denpasa. And it was just awful. Uh, that's where people go while the prosecution is working on your case, until your case is ready to go to, to the, the prosecutors to court for the first time, you're in police remand. And the cells are tiny. It's really, really overcrowded. Uh, you, you, can, you get scarcely any visitors. You're allowed visitors twice a week, but it's for an hour. The food is terrible. The conditions are terrible. It was just, it was absolute hell, absolute hell. 
I remember seeing pictures in most of the Australian dailies of you being paraded through Bali in chains with an orange jumpsuit and a sack pulled over your head. Frankly, it could have been anyone, but what's the real purpose of this awful parade? Is it simply to humiliate you? Uh, no, so the police can show off how clever they are. Uh, in fact, it's against uh, the United Nations human rights. Uh, they have very strict laws about it. You are not allowed to do that. Um, it, it's uh, something that's sort of been inherited from America, though, of all places, the perp walk, you know, the police you know, marching the arrested person. It's, it's basically for the police to show off, look at us, how clever we are, we've caught some international drug smugglers. And yet you have the sack over your head. I mean, really, you can't tell who it is, other than your height. In fairness, uh, I was the one who insisted they put it on, because they tried to make you parade without it on. Oh, wow. Uh, no, uh, and, uh, and I said no, uh, because I, I stuck to it, and I said they'd have to drag me out kicking and screaming. I thought it was bad enough that the news would be out and how friends and family would be so shocked by my arrest but I think even seeing me would be even worse which is why I thought well at least if I had a, a sort of a balaclava like covering it wouldn't seem as shocking but uh, obviously it had the opposite effect. David let me explain the charges against you bear with me as this is important and it's quite complicated the charges against you were severe to put it mildly for those of us in the west actually quite outrageous you were threatened with a section of the law that could see you slapped with a life sentence and a massive fine but you hoped to work the system and get the charge reduced to a so-called 127, which recognizes addiction and offers a more lenient sentence with the possibility of a rehab element. Indeed, the end of your mitigation was addiction caused by self-medication to treat years of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, brought on by years of reporting from hostile environments. Now, here's the thing. It was a very risky option, as PTSD was relatively new to Indonesia. Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, this was a, a strategy we worked on with um, my very smart lawyers, who I'm very grateful for, for all the help that they gave me. Because at first, yes, I was charged with trafficking. Because I had brought a joint to Joe, I was charged with trafficking, which carries very, very severe penalties. And so the whole idea was to get it down to being a user, basically, and um, uh, a user as a result of addiction. Which, of course, created another additional conundrum. And this was the test that was done on your <laughs> hair. Well, what little hair you had. Oi. <laughs> so they were testing for traces of drugs in your hair. Oddly, you needed to come back positive for drugs. Why was that? Yeah, because um, uh, I... I I did a urine test originally, and they said I was negative, which was nonsense because I'd actually smoked a massive spliff, you know, before I'd gone down to the bar. So, um, you know, if I if I really was negative, I want to have a word with the guy who had been dealing with, you know, to me for the last sort of uh, two years. Uh, but yes, it, it was negative, which then reinforced their case that I was a dealer rather than a user myself. Wow. And of course, a dealer was life imprisonment. Yes. It's incredible. Uh, David, let's talk about remand. By all accounts, a very special kind of hell. When you first got there, you were forced to go through an initiation. Can you describe that for us? Yeah, this, um, you're divided into two categories in, um, in Indonesian prisons. Uh, you, you mix together, but there's a, a definite hierarchy, I think similar to prisons and jails anywhere in the world. And in Indonesia, it's, uh, the two categories are narkoba, which means you're in on a drugs charge, or criminal, which means you're a thief or a, a murderer or a rapist or uh, something like that. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, the, uh, the narkoba, the, the drug offences, were definitely, you know, you higher up the scale, you know, you, you, you get more privileges, if you like, and you uh, more social standing in jail. And the lower... The lower down you go, the thieves are probably next on the ladder, but then it goes down, you know, rapists and paedophiles, that sort of thing, are, are way, way down the pecking order. And so depending on what your crime is, when you go into remand at first, you have to do, you know, if, you, if you've if you done something like theft or uh, or rape or, or 
or, or a pedophile or something like that, you know, you, it's, it's pretty severe. You're going to get, get beaten pretty hard. Um, you know, you have to run a gauntlet. Uh, you have to, uh, for the first day or so, it's, it's really very, very grim. And, uh, and then after that, you're left alone until you move to the big house. But for, uh, for, the drug, uh, for the drug offenders, for the narcoba, it's a lot more light-hearted, even if you say. You have to do what they call a chicken walk, which is walking on your haunches for 100 meters while people are sort of slapping you, and then um, they throw sandbags at your belly. So it sounds very humiliating. Um, your fellow prisoner, Joe, the guy who dobbed you in, uh, he was pretty hopeless at this, wasn't he? Yeah, he um, he was overwhelmed by the whole situation, and he, uh, he he frequently would just collapse and wouldn't move, and would just break down in tears. Uh, it, you know, it's it's pretty ironic though. Um, Joe actually ended up sharing the same the same tiny cell as you. I mean, that must have been uncomfortable to say the least. It, that, we had that for about just over a month, I would say, and it was intolerable. It was actually driving me mad. I think if anything was going to uh, was going to finish me off, it was that because we were the only two guilos in there for a while, um, the only two uh, uh, foreigners uh, is what I mean. They put us in the tiniest cell, uh, and then an, you know then another two uh, uh, foreigners were in there as well. So there were four of us, and this was in a cell that was meant for one person. It's a how big was that? Uh, it was about one and one and uh, one meter twenty five wide, <laughs> by about uh, by oh, my my feet could touch the other end. And so where do you have to do your six. business? Oh, there's a hole in the floor at the at the end of the cell. That's it. God. Um, so so you were in <coughs> demand for quite some time, waiting for the trial. In fact, you wrote a blog whilst inside, and you mentioned the conditions, which bloody hell, David, by all accounts, were truly grim. Yeah, you were locked up in the cell for around 22, 23 hours a day. And there was no natural light coming into them effectively. Uh, and there was certainly no electric light. So as soon as, um, you know, it was very difficult to even do things like read or anything like that. It was, you, you were let out twice a day for a, a meal, which was uh, 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 just rice and half a boiled egg or rice and a, a chicken wing or rice and a little piece of fish, something like that. And you had that twice a day. Or any food that any visitors could bring for you on the two times a week that they could visit you. Um, you know, one of the things I found horrific um, was the way lawyers quite literally drained you of all your finances in literally a matter of days. I mean, it was like a slot machine. They preyed on prisoners knowing that they were panicking and would do anything to get out or to get a more lenient sentence. Well, it's very difficult to get out at all once you enter the prison, into the arrest system uh, in Indonesia. It's almost impossible. You know, you, you, you're going to stay the distance. It's, it's hard to be bailed for anything in Indonesia. And, and yes, the lawyers are, um, you know, because the Indonesian system is such that it's, it's a question of how much, you, how much you pay is how much you are going to uh, uh, eventually be sentenced to. It's, uh, it's a reality of the system. Corrupt, in other words. Uh, but you, you were lucky. I mean, I know lucky isn't a very good word, but because you knew people in Bali and Lombok, and indeed Elizabeth Pozzani, your ex-wife, is a person, well, with some considerable clout in certain Indonesian circles, this must have helped you. Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth was a rock, uh, but there were a few other people who were as well. I mean, um, Andrew Coburn, of course, you know, our, uh, our, uh, one of our oldest friends. He and Elizabeth were really great on organizing the Indonesian aspect because their Indonesian is so good. But also uh, uh, Rob Bradley and, and Chris Peterson in particular at the beginning, you know, I, it must have exhausted them the whole process because they were, they were spending all day of every day trying to help me and doing whatever they can to help me. They were quite tireless, actually. They really were. Uh, and legal fees, punitive fines, they all might mount up very fast. You quickly used up your Reuters pension, a considerable amount of money, and any other life savings that you had squirreled away. Um, and the trial was still some weeks away or months away. I mean, it's an expensive business. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it really was, and uh, and and I have to say, there was a, it wasn't a formal sort of GoFundMe, but there was a sort of informal one, and uh, people from around the world, um, uh, friends and even uh, strangers, were uh, were contributed to it, and without them, I, 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 there's no ways I could, I would have been doing a lot longer time if it, if it wasn't for the amazing generosity and help from people around the world. And, of course, exacerbated by the fact that visitors are only allowed to see you for a few minutes every day, um, which seems incredibly harsh. I, I remember I wanted to fly out to Bali, but was told absolutely categorically not to do it and not to waste my money, as I'd uh, I would only get a few minutes with you. So I'm quite pleased I didn't do that, I yeah. have to say, David. Yeah, I know. That was the smart idea. I, I was discouraging people from, from flying in. You know, it, it was... Uh, you know, I knew that the, the the end would be in sight. It would be about three months. That's the usual process it takes for you to, to be churned through the system. And then I'd be moved to Karabakan, where, where despite, it, you know, its reputation, uh, life there was a lot, lot better than it was in Rima. Yeah, we'll get to Karabakan in a second. David, what was your sentence in the end? Uh, no, the sentence in the end was seven months. It was just over seven months. Just over seven months. Uh, there's a terribly touching story about a time when you were incredibly depressed, or to borrow an expression from you, the black dog was snapping at your ankles. It was one of those typical Balinese downpours, and you just went and stood in the rain. Tell us that story, David. Yeah, it was... Um, it, it, it was the afternoon um, uh, let out. So we get about half an hour, and you get your meal, and you all sit down in this... Uh, uh, sort of crocodile line and eat and you and there's usually you know you've wolfed down your meal in about five minutes but then the heavens opened up and it was just it, it was you know compared to when you're trying to wash indoors in these horrible cells you know uh, hanging above the uh, the hole in the ground suddenly it was that a time to be able to be cleaned and washed and purified almost and it was just fantastic I remember just standing out there and and I, I kind of went through a bit of a wobble, if you like, and I was, you know, blubbing like a baby. But fortunately, no one could see because it was just pouring with rain, and you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell tears from the storm, to be honest. I mean, they all thought you were slightly mad, but they all came and joined you. They did, they? yeah, they did. And then suddenly, uh, one person thought, "Well, I'm going to get in on this," and then another did, and then half the half the jail was uh, was running around, splashing in the rain, and it was. Uh, and then sliding up and down the uh, the oh. tiles, it was it was quite fun in the end. It's a, a very evocative picture. So you were eventually transferred to the not notorious Karabakan prison. I mean, it's been written about countless times and instills fear in the most hardy of people. It's been compare compared in books to the Bangkok Hilton, and yet. Compared to Ramand, as you said earlier, Karabakin was almost like a walk in the park. Yeah. Fact, didn't you have a nickname for Karabakin? Uh, well, no, we... Uh, Hotel K or something. It is known as Hotel K, yeah. Um, but at first, I mean, it was terrifying because I'd read all the books about it as well. And uh, so I, you know, and it had a, an appalling reputation. But I'd, I'd done a bit of research and I'd uh, managed to, you know, get some messages to and from people that were inside there. So I had a slightly better idea what to expect. The first, the worst thing was the first month, apparently, because you go into a special block uh, until your first court appearance. And while you're in there, it's, it's determined whether which other block you're going to go to. There's 10 blocks in, in total in uh, Karabakan. And they're generally divided by whether you're a Muslim or whether you're a certain gang in Bali or whether you're from the outlying islands. And there was a f one block was meant uh, particularly for foreigners. But the, the two blocks where you stay for one month, one is for the criminals and the other one is for the Narkoba. And so for the, you know, the first month like, you're supposed to spend in the Narkoba cell, it, well, the first night I spent in there, it was like, I can't deal with this. It was just, the, that was even worse than Remond. It was r incredibly overcrowded. And I've never seen so much drugs in my entire life. I mean, every mm. single... You have to go in there, and they said straight away, right, here you go, you've got to smoke this crystal meth. And I said, I'm not going in near the stuff. And they said, well, if you don't, we think that you're uh, a rat. Therefore, um, you know, we're going to uh, beat you up. And it's like... It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's quite ironic, but you're, you're just telling us that drugs inside were so much more prevalent than on the outside. 
Um, but you're, you're saying you never got tempted? No, not once, not once. I, uh, you know, I, I, the effort and the anguish, the anguish I'd put everyone through, and the effort that they were going through to try and get me out of there, I thought it would be a, a massive betrayal if I... Uh, I vowed off um, weed for the rest of my life, and I'm, I'm proud to say I've never touched it since, to be honest. Well done. Look, um, all prisons have a big boss, even the terrible 1980s TV show Prisoner Cell Block H had vinegar tits. Tell me about the big boss in Karabakin. Was he someone to fear? It sounds to me like it was quite a democratic process choosing a boss. It, it really was. I mean, uh, it, it, that system existed in Remond as well, but in Remond it changed because people were cycled out of there every three months. Yeah. So when the, when the current big, when I was in there, there was a current big boss. And he left after about a month, and we had effectively we had an election to pick the next big boss, you know, and and that big boss then would pick five or six trustees. So these guys wouldn't be locked up in the cells at night; they would sleep in the corridors. Effectively, they'd be the ones who negotiate with the guards, uh, that sort of thing. And and in Karabakan, it's pretty much the same thing, except each block has its own sort of big boss and a little committee, and then each person on each block then forms part of the the major prison committee which deals with the uh, with the hierarchy and it's those committees are the ones who determine where whether someone even gets a cell or a room as you like to call it inside um in fact in order to get a room you need to prove yourself getting a room is dependent on several factors like tenure wealth status influence popularity you did this by how? By becoming a prison medic? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, well, it helped that I did have a, a, you know, a bit of... You have to buy your way into, into, a, into a, a room. As you say, we prefer to call them rooms rather than cells. I think a cell reminded us too much of that we were in prison, so we, we, we called them rooms. And, uh, and they, there's, a, you know, there's a waiting list. People would want one. Otherwise, you have to sleep in the corridors, and, it's, uh, and there's zero privacy. Uh, but I went up the um, charts very, very quickly. Um, one, because I could afford to be generous in the sense that uh, even when I was in Remand and once I moved to Karabakan, I had a lot of visitors. They brought me more food than I could eat, to be honest. And so I could afford to be generous and give to people who didn't have. Uh, I didn't try and sell it and make profit off it like, uh, like some people would do. It was For me, it was rather a case of looking after other people. That sort of stuff gets noticed, and and then also, uh, you know, I have pretty good, um, uh, you know, first aid medical training from you know years as a reporter in the field, and that proved invaluable for, um, you know, you know the odd stabbing here and there and stitching um, up a word exactly. D David, let's discuss the guards. Obviously, there are good guys, there are bad guys. Some are cold-blooded, others have empathy, but <clears throat> were there any who stood out? And indeed. Was there a difference between a, a prison guard and a policeman? Uh, well, in um, in Riemann, they were all policemen, effectively. Uh, but in uh, in uh, Kirobakan, they were all prison guards. Uh, you know, the police were not allowed in the prison, uh, effectively. Right. So that's a separate, an entirely separate uh, uh, branch of the you know armed forces, if you like. You know. And there were two kinds there. There were people who were doing it as a career. So these were smart people who were, you know, going through the ranks in the prison service. And they would generally be the wardens, the very senior people. And then there were, there were locals who are hired effectively just as security guards working in the prison. You know, they could also spend their life working as a, a security guard. But they would never be transferred to another, you know, island or a different prison, whereas the senior people would be. Okay. Um, and they, as I said, there were good guys, there were bad guys. Uh, were there any that particularly stood out? Yeah, there were, you know, they generally they just didn't want trouble. They wanted their life to be made as easy as possible. And they wanted to be enriched. So, you know, they were taking money. You have to pay to be in prison. Uh, and so, you know, to get electricity in, into your cell block, you had to pay. You know, and it wasn't just paying for the electricity. It was, uh, you know, you had to pay the guards to click the switch type thing. You had to pay them not to confiscate. You know, we all had telephones in there. So you had to pay a levy every month to be allowed to have your telephone. And, you know, some guards, for example, if, you, if they happen to catch you using your telephone, 
you know, some guards would put the phone in their pocket and then you went through the prison committee if you didn't have any influence and they get it back for you a couple of days later for if you paid 50,000 rupiah, which is, say, $5, you know. Uh, but other guards would be just spiteful and they'd just smash them on the ground. I mean, it's incredible if you don't know these rules and regulations it could be absolutely awful how did joe the snitch fare in this whole thing he was he was terrible for for one he were i put word out that i was going to um beat him up okay i'm going to get to that in a second that is something and i don't know how to pronounce it it's called gigit gigit yeah gigit okay um tell us about gigit well, gigit is uh, effectively you don't rat on someone. And if you rat on someone, then you are allowed to, uh, you know, take out, your, uh, take out your, your revenge on them. And this is organized. The prisoners will organize it. Um, and you're allowed to do that once in remand. Because word gets out. The, the, the police and the, and the guards tell everybody in jail what everybody's in for. You know, there's no secrets in there. And so it, you know, Joe was known as a as a rat straight away, and so I was given the opportunity to sort of um, beat the crap out of him in remand, um, which I was, you know, I desperately wanted to do. I was looking to lash out at someone and blame anybody but myself for being in there, and uh, and you know, I, you know, this is with the, a few years behind me now, time for reflection. Even though he did clearly rat on me, you know, ultimately I was the person to blame for being in jail, and. But I, uh, you know, when I, when they found us a corner away from all the prying CCTV, and I wanted to wail into him, he just fell on the ground and, and curled up in a ball, and it was just, it was hopeless. I gave him, I gave him a couple of slaps across the face, and that was it. I mean, it's very Shawshank. Uh, in fairness, you must have been absolutely spoiling for a fight, and but disappointed that he just crawled up into a ball. Yeah. I, After all, this man had ruined your life. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, and as I say, at that point, it wasn't without the distance of realizing that, you know, I've got to put some of the blame on myself. You know, something that fascinates me about this story was the fact that there are these extraordinary, quote, uh, Queensbury rules in prison, or as you call it, Gigit. Once you had duffed up Joe or slapped him across the face, According to Gigit, Joe was now to be treated as an equal to all the other prisoners. Yeah, that was in Remont until you go to Karabakan. And then after your sentencing, you have one more stab at him as well. Oh, wow. Right, if you'll pardon the expression. <laughs> oh, wow. But uh, yeah, so once you've sentenced, you get another crack at him. And and anyway, the, the word out was, was also that, you know, the foreigners in particular, you know, tended to be less forgiving of rats than the Indonesians actually and so he really dreaded going into the foreign bloc because he knew it was full of you know nigerians and russians and iranians and all these sort of sorts who some very very hardcore prisoners who were would not treat a rat lightly and and he was quite right uh, you know he he was never allowed any access to uh, to uh, uh, getting a room with no opportunity to he had to sleep next to the paedophiles, that sort of thing, you know. He had the lowest status. And uh, in the end, he became a bit of a meth head. He became a complete meth head. You know, he had a, a terrible, terrible addiction in there. And, and you know, while it gave me some sort of satisfaction watching him go down the sort of... Um... Now, yeah. I'd be lying if, it, if I said it didn't, you know, but uh, it was probably not very um, charitable of me to, to take pleasure at it. Well, as you said earlier, you know, you, can, you only have yourself to blame, I suppose, for being in there. I think that's a bit harsh. Now, there's another fascinating story about a prisoner called Cat, who almost hanged himself. In fact, you were instrumental in saving his life. But Cat was far worse off than Joe, because Cat had ratted on the big box yeah. inside prison. Mm. I mean, there's one thing about being a rat outside of prison, but being a rat inside was a totally new story. And yet, David, there's an unusual amount of humanity at the end of the story. Can you tell us the story? Yeah, he tried to hang himself using a sarong, and um, you know, I helped pull him down and, and, and do some uh, CPR on him, and we, we revived him, and he was, he was carried out and taken off to hospital, but... Eight hours later, he was back in. He brought, brought back inside, and um, the uh, the deputy head of um, of uh, Remand was a, um, uh, a a Papuan chap, 
who you know Papuan people tend to be quite distinctive looking in the, uh, compared to the rest of uh, of Indonesia and and he was a really jolly chap and he called us all crammed us into this uh, what they call the aula a little hall in this uh, in this prison and we all were squatted down and then in they wheeled in cat you know who was looking particularly sheepish and and the uh, uh the, the warden gave us all this lecture and said right you know this is a this is a person you've got to stop this you know he has uh, promised he's never going to rat again and and now you've all got to um, shake his hand and we all had to wheel out and walk out of the uh, aula in- including the big boss including the big boss and you know i have to say no one look no one became his best friend after that but no one uh, laid a hand on him the big boss said right that's it it's done Wow. I mean, it was a dog-eat-dog world in there, wasn't it? Yet you made sure you got on very well with the Africans who held the most sway among the foreigners. Although I should imagine they must have been a bit surprised to see a a Mzungu turn up on their doorstep. (laughs) Yeah, it was was mostly Nigerians... uh, uh, in uh, of the the African block in where I am with a couple of uh, Ugandans and a few South Africans uh, but the, the South Africans were also were all whites actually um, uh, yeah. and then uh, but the Nigerians were were uh, were an odd lot they were all former professional soccer players in Indonesia who all got involved in trafficking drugs and then all got busted at the same time and all doing life sentences you know and but they took over the prison pretty quickly there was some rivalry with the iranians it was a big bunch of iranians but the iranians uh, got moved to a different prison they were considered to be getting too full of themselves and so they they sent them to some remote part of uh, of indonesia well uh but it, okay it's not like boarding school this is ridiculous but um like boarding school, you gave many of the inmates nicknames. There were three Russians, for example, known as the Brothers Karamazov. <laughs> yeah. There was a moaning South African called Um Shulk Lorenz from Herman Charles Bosman's short stories. Yeah. Um, uh, there was Ned Kelly. Clearly, he was Australian. There was Lee Kuan Yew, who was, I suppose, Singaporean. And there was Ali Barber. I'm not quite sure. He was um, the Iranian. Okay, let me throw a few names of inmates at you, and can you tell me a little bit about their backstory? Um, keep it relatively brief, because I want to get on to the most famous gang of foreigners <coughs> in Karabakin, at, and that was the Bali Nine. Anyway, the first uh, uh, inmate, <coughs> Trevor No, can you tell us his story? Uh, Trevor No was a Singaporean DJ. I think if that's the right one I'm thinking of, actually, Pete, who uh, who um, came over for a birthday party and had, had bought some drugs from uh, uh, from Malaysia. Just to, I think it was four or five ecstasy tablets, and that was it. And uh, and brought, flew into from Singapore into uh, Bali and was going to have a big birthday party with his friends and all that sort of thing arriving. And uh, and he got caught. And they threw the book at him, and a lawyer told him, assured him that he was going to get him down to just a couple of years in jail. He spent an absolute fortune, and uh, he ended up getting nine years, Uh I believe it was. was, And, you know, the lawyer didn't even show up in court for his court appearance. So all the money, all the backhanders he had paid to have his case sort of uh, looked at, uh, were clearly the lawyer just pocketed. You know, it, it's a real. It really is a question of finding the right lawyer in Indonesia. And very quickly. Yeah. There was a guy called Tony de Melmange. Yeah, he was possibly one of the saddest cases there was. Uh, I came across in Karabakan. T- to be honest, everyone in Karabakan was guilty, uh, and you know, I put my hand up. I was guilty as well. Mm. Uh, regardless of the, you know, the odd person would say, "Oh, I was set up," and this sort of thing. You know, um, everybody was guilty. Uh, apart from Tony. Tony was one of those people who, he got suckered into an internet love scam uh, on Facebook by uh, by this South African blonde woman, or someone purporting to be a South African blonde woman, who played a long con on him over a year and a half, telling, you know, falling in love with him on the internet, all this sort of stuff. But remarkable, and, and Tony was a, he was a bit of a simple bloke, actually. He, you know, he, he registered, you know, quite close to the to the spectrum in New Zealand, um, and he got 
you know, he thought he was in love with this with this woman on the internet, and and this woman, you know, even though he had never spoken to her, there it was might always, not even been a woman. No, it wasn't. It was some Nigerian gang. Of course, it was. Mm. So he he eventually agreed to travel to meet her in Hong Kong, and so he uh, flew to Hong Kong. Uh, she mysteriously wasn't here, but she said her friend would meet him in Hong Kong, and her friend, of course, met him here, and said, "Oh, she's in Bali." Uh, she wants you to go there, but you've got the wrong clothes because you've arrived in winter. And so let's go shopping. And she sent us money to get you some new clothes. So they bought him all these beach clothes. And he was sort of like, oh, your suitcase will never fit this stuff. So here's a suitcase for you to use. And he arrived in Bali. And of, of course, course, the suitcase was full of drugs. It was, it had, it was packed a kilo and a half of crystal meth. How extraordinary. And he got, he got sentenced to 21 years. And and he was he generally, I mean, I, I would say of all the people, of all the the tales of woe I heard in, uh, in, and there were a few other people who, who claimed they didn't know their suitcases were full of drugs. He generally, you know, he, he was so naive and so simple, he had no idea. Alexander Simonov. Oh, a Russian yoga teacher. And another teacher. guy called Sergei. Yeah, the two Russians, they were, um, they both were caught with exactly the same amount. Uh, and, and Alexander, he paid a fortune to the lawyers and I think he ended up with, uh, promised he'd get eight years and ended up with 10 years. And Sergei, who refused to play the system at all, uh, paid not a cent, ended up with 12 years, with just two years more for exactly the same quantities of drugs. Mm. It's just insane. Um, another chap called Ronald Samanda, or uh, he was known in the trade as a good swallower. Yeah, I... Pete, don't get excited, okay. <laughs> He was a Ugandan who actually ran a school of traffickers out of Uganda, training people how to swallow drugs and uh, and all this sort of thing. And um, and then he decided, well, I'm going to try this myself. And uh, and he did it for several years. He did it for about four years, you know. Uh, and he said he could swallow nearly two kilos of drugs and um, and bring them, you know, take them from one place in the world to the other. Uh, but eventually he got... Uh, you know, he, he was never caught for, you know, he was he was sacrificed. Every now and then, the, the people who control these guys... Have to... They have to put up a sacrificial in. lamb, yeah, to, so that the uh, the customs people can say, look at us, we've caught someone. Well, they got rid of their best swallower. They, uh, what about Paul Hoffman? Oh, yes, Paul was a very interesting uh, character as well. He was an American married to a, a Balinese who ran a website, uh, a Facebook page in Bali... That was always hitting on about people who were caught doing drugs in Bali, saying they deserve to hang, they should be executed, they should be you know shot without trial, all this sort of thing. He was he was just be uh, careful what you wish for kind of guy. Very very much. And then he was caught robbing Seven Elevens or Circle Ks in, <laughs> and really bad robbery and he, he bully robberies. He had taken knife. He'd wait for a Circle K until two in the morning when it was only, say, a, a young girl, the only person on duty, and he'd take in a knife, rob the contents of the till, and take a couple of bottles of whatever liquor was going. And he got caught. <laughs> so next thing you know, he's in the he's in Kirobakan with a lot of people rubbing their hands, Ooh, who, had all been, who had all been seeing these stories about they should hang the lot of them and all this sort of thing. Uh, do you remember a guy called Tommy Schaefer? Yeah, the, um, the world's most hopeless murderer. Um, yeah. An American, him and his girlfriend murdered the girlfriend's um, mother at a luxury hotel in, uh, in, in Indonesia and then put her, managed to cram her body into a suitcase and they uh, left the hotel, put it into the back of a taxi. But the, uh, the, the people in the hotel were saying, but you haven't checked out properly, you haven't checked out properly, you know. And so these guys, they went back into the hotel and ran out the back way and then just vanished. And of course, you know, the hotel sitting there with this rather heavy suitcase in the back of a taxi and two guests who have done a runner. And uh, so they opened the suitcase and there they found the poor unfortunate um, uh, Mrs. In, you know, in there. And, uh, and then there was, you know, the manhunt was on and they found the two of them in some cheap guest house in, uh, in Kuta. 
and uh, and arrested them and uh, yeah I have to say, David, Bali is not uh, the innocent little paradise island everyone thinks it is. All right, let's get on to the big group, the Bali Nine. In April 2005, nine Australians, known as the Bali Nine, were convicted for attempting to smuggle 8.3 kilograms of heroin out of Indonesia. The heroin was valued around 4 million Australian dollars and was bound for Australia. The two ringleaders, um, Andrew Chan and Miuran Sukumaran, were sentenced to death and executed in April 2015. Uh, there were six other members left, C.Y. Chen, Michael Chugai, Tan Duck Tan Nguyen, Matthew Norman, Scott Rush, Martin Stevens. They all got life imprisonment. And then another one, Renee Lawrence, got 20-year sentence but was released after it was commuted in November 2018. But it was Matthew Norman, or Matty, who resonates the most in your life. Tell us about him. Yeah, when I arrived there, um, uh, the, the two ringleaders, as you said, had been executed, and uh, there were only two of the the remaining seven left in Corobican. Uh, that was CY and Maddie Norman. The others had been moved for one reason or another to different prisons in, in Bali, uh, in around Indonesia and Bali, mostly because of drugs or bad behavior or that sort of thing. And um, in fact, they, all of them had gone through, they'd been sentenced to uh, life and then they appealed and then were sentenced to death as a result of their appeal, and then appealed again, and then they were sentenced back to life again. Oh it, was, it was a bit very traumatic. But anyway, it was just Maddie and CY. I where, mean, they were guilty. Oh, they, absolutely. There's no question about it. Um, but uh, but bear in mind that if they had been caught in Australia, bringing those drugs into Australia, they would have probably done four or five years at the most. That's correct. And the Australian authorities knew about this, and yet allowed them to be caught it's a huge scandal it still it still resonates today the scandal about that but that's besides the point is yeah anyway the, the so the two who are left in in uh, in Karabakan, and the one who struck me the most I, I i got to know matty very well and quite early on and he was just a first class bloke i mean really he uh he was you know he's dashing handsome you know fit just with a great attitude, you know, and I and I asked him, and I said, "How do you how do you deal with this? How do you, you know, how do you get up every day and and just and he and he and he, and he said, look, I, you know, I wake up and I say, what can I do for somebody else in this hellhole today? And that's what I'm, I'm how I'm going to get through the day. And he really inspired me, even though he's, you know, probably young enough to be my son. I I really drew strength from his attitude and how. And I know he has dark days, and uh, I know he has, you know, he, he and, and dark years sometimes. But I'm very confident the end is very, very close for him, by the way. Very, very close. You think that he might be released quite soon yeah, I, for good behaviour? Yeah, I think they'll get their sentences commuted, the remainder, the, the, the rest of them. David, you famously said in your blog, when you were due to be released, that is, if Matty could be given a month of freedom in exchange for me staying behind for an extra month, I would do it in an instant. I would have done it in a heartbeat, absolutely. Are you still in touch with him? Very much so. I just spoke to him last weekend, actually. Okay. Now, David, let's talk about your freedom. When it was announced in court that your sentence was a, a one-year minus time served, was it true the presiding judge gave you a thumbs up? Yes, he did. You became quite a celeb amongst the the legal teams, didn't you? Well, it was after during one of the you know one of the uh, uh, the trial days when they were you know relating my background and where I'd been and worked and all that sort of thing. After that, the one of the judges called me up to the bench after the court was adjourned and and just said, "Oh, this is amazing. Tell me more about this." You know, and he was he was fascinated by the. You know, the whole idea of, you know, working as a as a correspondent in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Absolutely. And and when you left, the block threw you a party and gave you a signed T-shirt. Yeah, apparently they hadn't been done before. I have, I've still got it. They had a T-shirt. Minus one. Signature. Minus one signature. That's true. That's that's true. And it's all it's all signed with their uh, best wishes and all that sort of thing. It's a. Uh, 
It's uh, it's awaiting framing. Uh, a story I haven't talked about yet are your dogs. Uh, when you were put inside, you left uh, two lovely little dogs, one of which was called Streaky. Streaky is a three-legged mongrel. Um, in fact, during one visit, they brought Streaky in to see you, didn't they? Yeah, my staff did. They uh, it was it was hilarious. It was it, while I was in Remond actually, and uh, Remond you had to speak to visitors like in the cliched behind a glass panel using a telephone, you know, and your name would be called and you'd go to the sort of uh, booth part, pick up the telephone, look through the glass panel, and there was uh, my Pembantu um, and her husband, uh, which is your sort of domestic uh, uh, staff, uh, with Streaky under there, holding the phone to Streaky's ear. <laughs> I'm sort of, oh my, you know. And, but for, um, for 50,000 rupiah, you could bribe the guards, and they'd they'd literally give you a minute in a in a little in the guard room uh, where you, without the glass in between you. So uh, I slipped the, the guard a quick bribe, and they said, "Right, sit down in this corner." And uh, I sat down there, and the other door opened, and in came this Exocet missile, which was streaky, and just boom hit hit me at you know a hundred miles an hour, and that was you know it was fantastic, but it was also that minute later when they separated us and I went back into jail, it was one of the lowest points I've ever felt. And at that moment, uh, the first person I saw who walked out of the side room in front of me was Joe. And I just punched him with every single Joe bit the of snitch. strength. Yeah, every single bit of strength I had. Sent him flying. And everyone had to jump on me to get me off him. It was, it was, uh, I didn't get into trouble for it, fortunately. Well, he finally got his comeuppance. Um, you were never repatriated with your beloved dogs uh, because essentially on your release, you were frog marched straight to the airport. Yeah, and thereby hangs a tail as well because I was put into immigration cells and uh, and it was beneath the, uh, beneath the immigration headquarters near the airport in Bali while I, while I organized a flight for me. And it, basically, I was going to be there for two nights. It's kind of standard procedure. But you you can you know you can have your phone out in the open there that sort of thing it's no it's not you know it wasn't prison but it was definitely it's it's a lockup, but it was full of visa overstayers, uh, mostly sort of um, a lot of Eastern Europeans that sort of thing and and there's about five cells in there about three people to a cell, and I walked into the one cell and there were two other people in there there was an American in there and a uh, New Zealander in there, and I walked in and put my bags down and I lit up a cigarette and this American said, hey man, there's no smoking in here. <laughs> and I just looked at him and I, and I just, you know, I, I slightly exaggerated perhaps, but I just said, I've just got out of a year in Karabakan. Do you really fucking want to start this with me? <laughs> and he just sat straight down. <laughs> Listen, time's marching on, David. Uh, let's end on a quote from you. As I settled into my seat, I finally felt free for the first time. If the plane hadn't taken off, I'm sure the butterflies in my stomach could have done it for me. Next stop, Bangkok. So very quickly, tell us what happened next. Uh, well, I arrived in Bangkok and then uh, I went, I'd committed to go to, you know, because we had, you know, we had really uh, uh, made a lot of, of the fact that I was an addict, you know, uh, uh, my old employers, Reuters, agreed for me to to pay for me to go to this incredibly plush uh, rehab center in uh, uh, Chiang Mai in Thailand. So that was my next stop. I went from the hell of uh, of you know Indonesian prisons to the incredible luxury of uh, this was five star, five hundred US dollars a day, swimming pools, buffets, you name it. But in some ways, it was more of a prison than Karabakan was. You weren't allowed telephones. Certainly, there was no alcohol. So you were free, but you weren't allowed a phone. No, no. You were allowed a phone for a couple of hours on a Saturday afternoon. That was it. It was hardcore rehab. You had to do group therapies. You had to... Were you allowed visitors? No, 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 no. Nothing like oh, that. Oh, my God. It was, okay. it was uh, six weeks of very, very intensive rehab with, with you know... With people who are, you know, uh, finally, you know, coming to grips with their alcoholism or their or addictions of all sorts, you know, yeah. um, there were sex addicts in there. There were uh, it was it was a, it was a fascinating. Experience. And I, I I stress, I did a lot of uh, yoga in there. 
a lot of uh, the therapy in there, and it really helped. Uh, I I learned a lot about myself in there. It was um, even though I wouldn't be probably be uh, put down as a as a as an addict as such. I learned a lot about um, about you know the devils that we all have within us. David Fox, we're out of time. Thank you for sharing the story with us. But perhaps I should ask before going, do you have any plans to go back to Bali? I'd love to. Um, I'm, I'm technically I'm banned for life, but I'm going through a process now where I'm trying to get that ban uh, lifted. I, I hold nothing against the Indonesians. Uh, you know, the system... It wasn't as if I was targeted. Everybody goes through the same drama there, whether you're Indonesian or foreigner. If you're caught, obviously I was more high profile because I was a foreigner and a journalist. Uh, yeah, but I, um, you know, I, I learned to speak Indonesian while I was in jail, and it seems a pity to waste the language. I'd love to go back to Bali. Um, I, I would uh, dearly love to. So yes. That's wonderful. That's a great way to end, David Fox. Thank you very much for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you again, Pete. That was my good friend and former jailbird, David Fox. Now, David told me after the interview that there are dozens of people who helped him through his ordeal, apart from those he did name, and asked me to mention in particular the Bolwell and Raymond clans, David Fields, Annie Sihombing, everyone from the Sunir and the Sunur 69ers, and the fire station, Colonel Hicks, Ken Marsh, Banana Liana, Adrian Houghton, and the whole of the Planet Rugby Forum. But in particular, Peter Douglas and Cameron Dunlop. And last but not least, his brother Simon, his amazing sister-in-law Sarah, and their four beautiful daughters. He apologizes for the many he hasn't mentioned by name. Well, that's all for now, but if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye. <laughs>